Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio with Middle East Forum Century Radio. It's been two weeks since we've been back in the studio. Thanks for joining us this morning in Philadelphia. You can call in if you have any questions for us at 1-888-329-3306. Again, call in if you have any questions for us at 1-888-329-3306. We have an exciting program this morning, bringing on Kyle Scheidler, the director of the Counter-Islamist Grid. But before we get to that segment, there has been a massive amount of news in the Middle East. Not just what happened today, not just what happened yesterday, but monumental progression and different issues that we've been covering for the past few months in many different countries in the region. First, I'd like to start off with a story coming out of 10 newspapers put together by a collective called Corrective TV a nonprofit newsroom that worked with nine other outlets, including Haaretz, an Israeli paper, to bring the background story to Turkey and Recep Tayyip Erdogan, its president's kidnapping operation against foreign dissidents for the last two and a half years. The article published yesterday out of Berlin begins as follows. One morning in the first half of 2017, a black van stopped on a street in the Turkish capital Ankara. Two men in civilian clothing, stepped out and pounced on a man walking by. They dragged him into the van and sped off. The whole incident took no longer than a few minutes, according to media reports and human rights group. The man who was kidnapped tried to fight off his assailants, but they beat him, covered his head with a black hood, and cuffed his feet. A year after the incident, he still has a big scar on his leg, a souvenir of the wound he sustained during the kidnapping. This individual later would say, I quickly realized there was no point in trying to defend myself and that I had to calm down and act in a calculated way. Essentially what happened was this individual was dragged off the streets of what is allegedly supposed to be a liberal democracy because of his political views. This was not an isolated incident. In dozens of other kidnappings, both in Turkey and in nine other countries, not just in the Middle East, but also in Europe, in Southeast Asia, and in other locales, we found ourselves in a situation where these people who were opposing, legally opposing the president of Turkey, were kidnapped because of their political views. The leader of their movement, a man named Fatullah Gulen, lives only an hour and a half north of Philadelphia in a compound in the Pocono Mountains. He has not committed a crime. He may have different political views than that of the president of Turkey. But now he is considered a bartering chip a bartering chip in the middle of a conflict that spans U.S. and Turkish interests, not just in the Middle East, but also through the rest of the world. We have Bob in Valley Forge who uh, may have a question for us about this incident. Oh, hi. How are you? Hey, is this Bob Skleroff? No, no. I, I know who that is, but it, it, no, it isn't. Okay. How can we help you? And it, uh, He's a very interesting, informed person, but... I'd like to uh, ask you, uh, I just uh, heard your radio show, so it seems pretty uh, cool. I'd like to ask you, do you ever watch uh, Memory at the Middle East uh, Media Research Institute? Correct. It's, it's a great resource for being able to find what's going on in Arabic and translated into English in their own language. But it's been ridiculed, you know, in the major media. Like, uh, they'll say, well, uh, the president quoted from memory, but this is the the uh, video service. But uh, I feel, I mean, it just shows translations of uh, Arab and 
uh, Muslim and Russian media, and it translates it into the various languages into from English to English. <clears throat> so I don't see it as a biased source. No, and and I think that uh, I think that memory is a good resource, especially when we're trying to find out what's happening in the language of these individuals. So let's turn to the Turkish reaction, talking about translations. We have here on Turkish television on CNN Turk, and as published by the Anadolu Agency, these different Turkish citizens who were arrested and kidnapped abroad and brought to Turkey, offering their confessions on Turkish state television. Now. Imagine you're just walking on the streets of Philadelphia, or perhaps there's a situation where you are not in Philadelphia, you're not protected by U.S. law enforcement or our national security agencies. Perhaps you find yourselves in a country where your opinions are not allowed to be anathematic to that of the country where you came from. You're sitting in a Western European hotel. You walk out onto the street and you want to buy yourself a newspaper. All of a sudden, a black van comes by puts a black hood over you after two men storm out of that van, and then they find yourself in the back of that van, then being whisked away to a Turkish intelligence jet or any other intelligence jet of any other country and being brought to your company of origin, your country of origin. How would that make you feel? That because you disagree with a regime, you're kidnapped and brought before a judge in a foreign land, and then you're being asked yourself, to offer a confession because you have been beaten, you have been tortured, your family has been threatened, and what other choice do you have between a life sentence and a dark dungeon or throwing your other friends under the bus in a trumped-up confession? This is what's going on in Turkey right now. You find yourself in a situation where you cannot disagree with the regime that rules your country. You can't disagree at home. You can't disagree abroad. You cannot offer any semblance of opposition to the policies that are being made in your country because you are risking life and limb if you do so. This is the situation in President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's Turkey. It has been slowly moving down this path since his election to prime minister of that country in 2002. And over the last 16 years, now going on 17 years, he has been able to completely silence all political opposition to him, whether it be through the courts, whether it be through the state takeover of newspapers, whether it be through the kidnapping of Turkish citizens on foreign soil, or even if it means political assassination, or in this case, two and a half years ago, potentially staging a coup d'etat attempt against yourself in the effort to put the last nail in the coffin of the Turkish opposition. Now, the hypocrisy, the rank hypocrisy that is coming out of Turkey, especially in the wake of the Jamal Khashoggi affair, the Saudi journalist who was killed in the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul to Turkey, where Erdogan is now seen as the protector of press freedoms, as the individual that's calling the Saudis to account for justice because of their suppression of one journalist, I don't mean to say that there is a moral variance here between the life of one individual and the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Turks who have been imprisoned or fired or silenced or even killed on their territory and abroad. But Erdogan is not the individual that the West should be turning to for accountability in the Khashoggi affair. 
And the criticism that he's offering of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, allegedly behind the Khashoggi affair, does not put him in a moral position to be able to condemn. If anything, Erdogan is worse than the autocrats in Riyadh because he has taken his system instead of an isolated incident like we find in the Khashoggi affair and made it the state-sponsored policy to silence, to torture, to beat, to maim, and to kill anyone who is against his position of power as the president of Turkey. More on this in our interview with Kyle Scheidler after these messages. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance, in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. This is Greg Roman, your host on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio. My next guest is someone I've been wanting to have on this program for the longest of time, especially since we began broadcasting in September of this year. An individual who runs and monitors a network of national correspondents focusing on the issue of lawful Islamism in the United States, a topic that's often broached on this program, but we have not gotten into the depths of where I would like to go before we have the opportunity to interview Kyle Scheidler. Mr. Scheidler specializes on Islamist groups operating in the United States, having spent over a decade researching and writing on their history, doctrine, and impact. He has briefed senior U.S. government personnel, members of Congress, and law enforcement on this topic. He also previously worked at the Center for Security Policy as the head of their Threat Assessment Desk, the Endowment for Middle Eastern Truth, and Stand With Us. Kyle, welcome to the program. Greg, thanks for having me this morning. So what can you tell us about the status of Islamism in America today in a few words? Well, I think uh, the word I would use is growing and expanding really at the uh, local level. So what does that mean, and how does your new project at the Middle East Forum, the Counter-Islamist Scrib, address that? So in the past uh, couple of years, especially under the Obama administration, we saw a real growth in uh, support for groups linked to uh, Islamism in the United States, especially at the federal level. And a lot of us were paying attention to that. And while we were paying attention to that, we weren't paying attention to the growth at the local level. And as you know, Greg, all politics in the United States ultimately is local. 
And so uh, with the support of the Middle East Forum, the counter-Islamist grid is looking at the growth and expansion of local Islamist groups, the ones that are interfacing with your local school board, the ones that are responding to your city councilmen, the ones that are meeting with your church bodies today. And can you tell us about a story or two that you've been able to break in the last few months? So one of the things we were looking at uh, and that we've seen um, really growing international, uh, nationally is the rise of Islamist-linked politicians running for local office. A recent case that we looked at was an individual running for Virginia uh, State Senate, uh, Democratic primary for Virginia State Senate, and he was in fact uh, affiliated with the Bangladeshi Nationalist Party, which is a, a quasi uh, often violent political party in Bangladesh with alliances with uh, Bangladeshi Islamist groups. And this individual who was running for office had a brother-in-law who's actually wanted by the Bangladeshi government for orchestrating a grenade attack on his political rivals. And this was an individual running for office in the United States, and the media did not say a word about this gentleman or his background. And usually when it comes to political opposition research, we find ourselves, whether it be Democrats or Republicans attacking one another, having their entire history dug into. Why wasn't this case brought up before the public eye? Well, I think there's two factors. One is that uh, traditional journalism in the United States is falling off, especially long-form journalism and the kind of journalism and research that can really dig into a story like this. Uh, and the other is uh, the pressure from Islamist groups that uh, any journalist that talks about this kind of thing, his paper is going to be targeted, he's personally going to be targeted, uh, and there's going to be basically no upside to reporting a story like that. And that's why it's important to have correspondence on the ground, like we do at the counter-Islamist grid, with people who understand these stories, they can write these stories, and they can stand up to Islamist groups when the pressure comes. So let's let's move back to, to beyond this story that took place on this election and get to some other cities that may not necessarily be in the national eye. Can you tell me about anything coming out of Colorado or, 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 or the boroughs of New York City or anything going on in California? Sure. Well, you know, if you look at the uh, situation in California right now, we just recently had uh, the Muslim American Society's uh, Los Angeles Convention. Muslim American Society is a group that uh, federal prosecutors have actually described as the overt arm of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States. And this group uh, publicly held their event in Los Angeles. Uh, they very uh, they were very aggressive. We also saw a lot of interesting things going on at that uh, at that convention, including the presence of the Turkish government. I know you were just talking about that uh, with your listeners, Greg. Uh, Turkish government is being very aggressive in its spreading its uh, its ideology and its links to Islamist groups here in the United States. So let's let's and hold off on that. We were able to watch that. So so how how is Turkey trying to affect American policy in our own country? What what exactly are they doing to try to influence the conversation here in the United States? Well, so we see them uh, promoting propaganda uh, at these conferences to American Muslims. Who maybe don't uh, realize what they're what they're seeing. Uh, you know, we saw the Turkish government spreading information about uh, the Armenian genocide, trying to deny the Armenian genocide. Um, they're also building uh, links and relationships with Islamist groups here in the United States, so that when they have incidents that they want to promote, and the Khashoggi affair is a great example of this, 
they can mobilize these Islamist groups in the United States, and then you have uh, you know pro uh, Khashoggi events popping up all over the country, as we saw recently, actually in Colorado, uh, which you mentioned. So, do you think there's coordination between American Islamist groups and the government of Turkey, and perhaps other foreign Islamist organizations? I would say, without a doubt, Greg, uh, the level of coordination that we see in Islamist uh, organizations is part of what makes them so dangerous. So your local Islamist in your community can rely on a network that spreads all the way to, to Ankara and it spreads all the way to Doha and Qatar. Okay, but right. let's let's move back for a second here and, and differentiate between American Muslim organizations and American Islamist organizations and then comparing them to other religious networks in this country that also rely on, on foreign bearings. For instance, we have the Catholic Church that part and parcel reports back to the Vatican. We have the Orthodox Union from the uh, you know Jewish community here in the United States, and they have partnerships in Israel and also around the rest of the world with other Orthodox communities. We have Hindu temples that are here that may have a spiritual figure that resides in India. What differentiates Islamists from these other communities of faith? That's a great question, Greg, and it's part of where we have trouble uh, often at the local level is, is helping people understand these differentiations, right? We're not talking about um, religious activity. What we're talking about ultimately is political activity, uh, speaking on behalf of a political ideology of Islamism and supporting the agendas of foreign countries, places like Turkey and Qatar, and in, uh, in, in some of the Shiite communities in the United States, Iran, right? So we're not talking about just uh, religious practice. We're talking about an ideological movement. We're talking about a political movement that portrays itself falsely as the leadership of American Muslims in the United States. They don't actually represent American Muslims, but they treat, they act as though they do. And too often our leaders treat them as though they do. So it's not just an issue here where you, you have some accusations unfounded and I think preposterous, even verging on, on the verge of hate of dual loyalty, whether it be the Catholic Church, like was used against uh, Senator Kennedy in the 1960 presidential election before he became president in JFK, and then sometimes this Israel case. I mean, it wouldn't even be fair to ascribe a dual loyalty to an Islamist. Perhaps he's just going for his own personal ideological agenda that's tied to the agenda of where his movement emanated from in the Middle East, and he puts America to the side. I mean, have you seen examples, and we did speak about this with the director of the Islamist Money and Project, um, Islamist Money and Politics Project at the Middle East Forum, Oren Litwin, two weeks ago, where we have had officials say that they're working within the democratic system is only a means to the end of being able to achieve the supremacy of the doctrine that they've put forward, which is anathema to American democracy. Do you have other examples of that? Well, I think the one you mentioned, which is Ibrahim uh, Samira, who's running in uh, Virginia for political office, as a matter of fact, is a, is a really good example where he says, you know, the um, the Democratic Party and the, the, the policies of progressivism, which we are proclaiming to support or we're, we're helping, is only part of our goal. We're only doing that in order to achieve our goal, which is which is ultimately the promotion of our view of Islam, our theocratic view of Islam. Right. And so they they have made these alliances within the political system. And they're allowed to do that by 
politicians and stakeholders here in the United States because they're perceived as useful, right? So the local politicians go to the Islamists because they think that there's a voting block there that will help them. And the Islamists are all about promoting that notion, as we, as we saw in that, in that recent statement um, so that now, I mentioned. So now, now so we've we're given seeing that all over right. the country. We, we, we've given the, the diagnosis of how Islamists are infecting the American body politic. What's the antidote and what specifically is your project, the counter-Islamist grid, going to do about it? So we're all about building a response at the local level. When Islamist groups, like, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood, came to this country in the early 1950s and 60s, they started at the local level. They started building networks and interlocking those networks up to the national level as they went. Right. If we're going to respond to Islamists, we have to be able to do the same thing. We can't have a top down approach where a couple of organizations in Washington tell people what to do. Right. It's got to be a a local uh, growth. We have to talk to people who understand their community. So the counter Islamist grid is recruiting uh, associates in, in major areas of the country to be those leaders, to help those connections, to reach out to people who are concerned about this issue. And then. Uh, they will have a uh, outlet where they can reach out to politicians, they can reach out to journalists, and they can be another voice so that when a journalist writes a story, there's somebody go to other than care, right, the Islamist group. Uh, there's somebody that a politician can talk to other than, you know, the local Islamist uh, interfaith group, right? And so they'll create an alternative and try to inject a little balance into the discussion. So you're building a network to fight a network. That's the only way to fight a network, Craig. And that's something you know that we've learned in the past uh, you know 14, 15 years uh, dealing with terrorism, counterterrorism, and counter ideological movements. Is networking and network uh, efforts are the only way to defeat another network. If you have a question for Kyle Scheidler, director of the Counter Islamist Grid, call in at one eight eight eight. Three two nine three three zero six. Again, the call-in number is one eight 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 three two nine three three zero six. More with Kyle Scheidler after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. So Kyle, we were just speaking about the way in which your network is fighting this national Islamist network, but on a local level. I'd like to uh, provide a scenario to you of something that happened here recently in Philadelphia and see if you can describe what you would uh, would what, what would amount to a solution using your network and how people can get involved. Because one of the things that we often have from our listeners, and, and they ask whether it be on social media or an email or, or when they call in, is what can they do to help fight this threat? You all right with setting this up? Sure, let's do it. All right. So a church here in Philadelphia, not to be named, was approached recently to have an interfaith rally against gun violence. And this was a noble cause. I mean, regardless of where you stand on the Second Amendment, the effort to reduce crime in neighborhoods, I think, is an honorable venture. And different policy uh, prescriptions can be offered for it. But what happened was, is, is that at this church, one of the main talking points that came up from a local imam was that the reason why gun violence is so disastrous in these communities and in Philadelphia and some of these urban communities is not because of the individuals that are actually using guns to commit crimes, but because of the police department that has been receiving training from Israel on ventures overseas and learning how to conduct homeland security and counterterrorism operations in the proper way. This imam said that the police learned to shoot first and ask questions later from the Israeli officials, as if if they were to receive training from the United Kingdom or France or any other country, they would be taught something different. Now, I know just from the Israeli example that that's not how the Israelis are focusing on their counterterrorism operations. That's not the training that they get. But a leader of a local Muslim institution was able to go into a church and offer a different prescription and a different way to indoctrinate, not even indoctrinate, but to offer his own version of political vitriol against a standing ally of the United States and in one fell swoop attack local law enforcement and a foreign ally of this country. Now, the members of that church, half of whom had no idea what he was talking about, largely ignored his statement. But the other half was incensed that there would be someone coming into their place of worship and offering a criticism against a foreign state with no evidence, with no rationale behind his decision or, or his decision to, to make that statement. And they said, why would you invite someone into our community of faith to offer a criticism of a foreign country when this is a local issue that has to be addressed by whether it's countering violent extremism initiatives or perhaps more liaising with the police department or perhaps better social programs in our community? He was able to take advantage of a local issue to offer criticism of an Islamist talking point. How would you respond? So this is actually a problem we're seeing across the country, and it's an example of the problem with Islamists and inviting Islamists in, right? And gun control is sort of an American conversation that we're having. It's political, normal political conversation, and the Islamists inject into it uh, their own uh, goals, their own objectives, uh, their own ideology, right? So that's the problem. So how do we address Right. So the first issue is uh, one of education. Right. Um, ideally, we'd have nipped this in the bud by uh, educating this church as to who they were inviting to begin with, and the kinds of things that he would say or has said in the past. 
but that horse is out of the barn. So what can we do now? Well, I would say, uh, one, having our associate locally in the city speak to those people with their con- about their concerns, giving them some more information about who this individual imam was, who he's associated with, etc., bringing that organized group to the church leadership to present their concerns. And if they're not uh, addressed properly, like uh, they don't get a, uh, for example, an apology or a promise to not work with this individual again, they can, uh, they can escalate, they can write letters to the local paper, they can, if necessary, uh, hold a protest, right? All of these things are, are activities that, that they can do, that they can raise the temperature and the profile and the cost of associating with these individuals uh, so that the cost of um, permitting Islamists to engage in this behavior is is higher than the benefit that is perceived uh, from having them take part. The other thing you can do, and this is important, is offer them an alternative, right? So through our uh, connections uh, with MEF and others, we can say, you know, you spoke to you spoke to this individual, Islamist individual, and I understand you want Muslims to be part of this conversation, and that's good and positive. Here are some better choices. Here are some non-Islamists that you can speak to uh, to address this situation or this conversation uh, so that you can be uh, inviting, you can be diverse, but you're not giving Islamists a platform to hijack your conversation to have their own conversation. So this is an issue that, that, like you said, is prevalent in many communities of faith and many other conversations going on throughout the rest of the United States. But there's plenty of well-meaning people that want to do something about their own Islamist problems locally, but they don't have the experience to speak credibly about Islamism. And they may very well end up being branded as Islamophobic. I mean, the political language and the charge that's being used against detractors of this violent and uh, a medieval ideology that we find throughout communities around the United States is when you try to challenge it, you know, and for instance, in this case of this church, if they were to speak out against the, uh, the, the imam who was offering this message, they might be branded as an Islamophobe. How is your network fighting back against this overt and incorrect political correctness philosophy? Well, so this is a, a really difficult problem that a lot of local groups have had in the past. Uh, one is because they don't have the education, they don't know how to talk about uh, Islamists, Islamist networks, Islamism in a credible way. And so they end up saying things that they don't uh, really mean or they don't uh, intend to be broader uh, or perceived as broader against the uh, larger Muslim community. And the Islamists take advantage of that brand and as Islamophobes and so on. So the first thing is education, getting in front of Uh, various stakeholders in the local community who care about this issue and saying, here's how you can phrase your argument. Here is hard data about the individuals you're concerned about, not just questions, not just uh, innuendo, but actual hard data about things they have said, organizations they belong to, uh, their beliefs and activities, uh, and why they are detrimental. And you can take that data and then you can move forward and know that you're on solid ground and you're going to say something that is legitimate and supported by the facts, and you can raise your concerns in that way, and it's going to be much harder to brand you as an Islamophobe uh, than if you sort of just get angry and spout off something on Facebook. And that happens all too often, and we, we lose an opportunity uh, to, to educate people because the Islamists jump all over that person, 
and they are branded and they're isolated and they're no longer able to assist this effort that they actually care about, which is pushing back against Islamists in their community. And I, I think that there's a second part of this conversation that we haven't necessarily touched on. Maybe at the beginning we did. But there's a battle, an intra-Muslim battle, that's currently going on to become the voice of the community here in the United States. And unlike there being a, a, a council of mainline Protestant churches or the National Council of Catholic Bishops or there being a, a, a national Jewish denominational body like the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, American Islam is varied. It's diverse. It has a plethora of different belief systems and denominations that many Americans are not aware of. I mean, we addressed the Jamaati Islami, which is the Bangladeshi Islamist variety, but there's also a very wide amount of secular and moderate Bangladeshi Muslims that live in this country. If you're coming from Turkey, you might be Sufi, or you might be a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. If you find yourself coming from Egypt, you might be having a, 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 a more moderate version of, of whatever that would be in, in the conservative lens from following the tenets of Al-Azhar University, or you also might be a member of the Brotherhood. If you're a Saudi, you might be a Wahhabist, or you might be a, a Muslim atheist, you know, coming from, from where you're going from. What is going on right now within American Islam? And how can your associates and the individuals that are starting to follow their path find responsible American Muslim partners that both believe in the Constitution and may practice a more moderate version of Sharia law? And how can they empower them and exclude the Islamists whose doctrine is anathema to American democratic interests? Well, you made a really good point, Greg, and it's actually one that the Islamists in this country have uh, really attempted to make as hard as possible. You might recall uh, sort of immediately after 9-11, a lot of law enforcement in this country said, we don't have a good understanding of the, the Muslims in America. We don't know where they live. We don't know how they live. We don't know what their leadership is. We don't know. And we, the Islamists stepped into that gap and said, we are the, we are the leaders. We run the organizations. We are in charge. And uh, too, all too often we, we accepted that in this country, and it's not necessarily true, right? There's never been a good attempt to actually map and understand the network and the community of Muslims in America. Who are the Sufis? Where do they live? Where do the Shiites live? What type of Shiites are they? Right? We don't have really good answers to these questions, and in part it's because the Islamists don't want us to ask. So we have been undertaking with our associates to really understand the not even muslim community but muslim communities plural in their local areas where do the sufis go to mosque where do the hardliners go which organizations are brotherhood linked which ones are jamaat al-islamiyah which ones are salafis how do they interplay with each other who doesn't like who and why all of these questions are legitimate questions that any researcher or academic uh, would undertake if they were to go to a, to a foreign country and try to study uh, religious practice in that country. That's the first thing they would do, is map out who the memberships are and where they are and what they think about each other. We haven't done that in this country. It needs to be done. It needs to be done in a serious, respectful way. And that's one of the things that SIG is undertaking to do uh, in areas where we have associates. So what I, what I think here, which is, is particularly uh, uh, prescient of, of what you're saying is, is that you're not trying to exclude American Muslims from the democratic process. You're trying to understand 
who are those? And I, I think that, that there have been some opinion polls that have been done. For instance, Pew, I think, said that there was only maybe 10%, not even a, a less, a single-digit percentage of American Muslims who thought that CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, represented them. But there, there is this silent majority, this vast amount of American Muslims who, who may not necessarily feel like they have a body to turn to to represent them in the political process. And you would be advocating for working with them. But there has been no messenger knocking at their door saying, please, we welcome you into our community of active local po- political participation or, 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 or trying to find the voices amongst yourselves to represent your positions. And beyond that, that, that silent majority, maybe what you're trying to do right here right now is to educate Americans and American Muslims that there isn't just a need to have a responsible voice to represent their many, many different voices in the political process and also the local process, but to take the place that American Islamists currently occupy right now. Uh, absolutely, Greg. You know, I think one of the things that's concerning is I think often even American Muslims don't know that there are others out there that don't agree with Islamists. And so they feel isolated because of this pressure that Islamists put on them uh, and put on the, the general community to, to make it look as though they are the only spokesman, only acceptable spokesman for the Muslim community. So by doing this process, we can identify those people that don't agree with that, and we can help link them to each other. And that's, I think that's also very important. And I, I think that what we might find here is they might be liberal, they might be conservative, but at the same time, they all have some version of faith that underwrites their interests on the religious establishment, when it comes to their actual decisions in the democratic process, they're separating their religion from their electoral participation. Right, and that's ultimately what makes them not Islamist, right? If uh, the, the, the hallmark of an Islamist is, is theocracy, it's the idea that only uh, their view, only their religious view and their religious law is acceptable. No one else's view is acceptable, and, whether Muslim and, or And you're an Islamophobe. You, you, you might even have a case like we saw with the Southern Poverty Law Center of a hypercharged political entity that's just placing blame left and right, calling a Muslim an Islamophobe. That's right. And here you have an example of uh, a group that is partnering with Islamists doing their work for them, of excluding Muslims from the conversation. More on that when we come back after these messages with Kyle Schreiber. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. 
practice your downward-facing dog as a team practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Talk Radio Philadelphia. In our last segment with Kyle Scheidler, the director of the Counter-Islamist Grid, we're going to focus not just on the problem and the solutions, but preventative measures that communities can take to ensure that Islamists are not able to take advantage of current fissures within the, within the democratic process and in local politics and being able to sort of get over the hump of this problem, which is addressing communities throughout hundreds of American cities and locales. Kyle, if we are to know what Islamism is, if we are to be able to address the problem before it creeps up, whether it be in our church, in our police department, in our rec center, whatever else it is, what sources can my listeners own community? Well, obviously, Greg, in their own community. Well, obviously, Greg, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention the Middle East Forum and their website, as well as uh, my good friends at Islamist Watch who have been tracking this issue uh, for a long, long time. Of course, if they're interested in the SIG effort and the work that we're doing at the local level, I'd encourage them to join us uh, at counterislamist.org, counterislamist.org. Uh, we're putting up our articles there. Uh, we're going to be putting up our research and uh, reports there as well. And uh, they can also reach out to us through that, uh, through that website. If they're in a local community, they have concerns, they have issues, they have a story they want to make public, uh, all of those things as well. So that's how they can, help, uh, they can help us help them. And let's say one of your associates is not in a community where an individual might want to turn to you. What can they do on the local level to be able to turn within their own community and educate them about Islamism? Well, I would encourage them to reach out with us, and we'll uh, gladly work with them. We can talk to them about uh, steps they can take. We can point them in, in the right direction. We can give them research. They can also start doing research um, on their own, and we can help them do that. And then they can feed that information into our broader effort, and, and they can help the whole community that way. So I would really encourage people to reach out to us if they're concerned about this issue. Uh, we can help us build this network because... Uh, only by cooperating and only by networking our efforts are we going to be successful. And uh, obviously, you know, I can't be everywhere, Greg. You can't be everywhere, although I know you try. Uh, but uh, together, if uh, if we work together, we can solve this. And if we were to identify not necessarily who the biggest Islamist threat is in the United States today, but who is the most prominent, let's call them moderate or mainstream Muslim that our listeners might want to turn to to see an alternative message that's different from that, that's counterintuitive, that's the opposite of the venom that Islamists are spewing. Who would you recommend that we follow? Uh, I would certainly encourage you to speak to uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. Uh, you can also reach out to groups like uh, Muslim Progressives, Muslims for Progressive Values, if you're an individual uh, who's Muslim and sort of on, on the uh, progressive side of, uh, of the scale. Um, you know, so there are people out there, no matter how you identify yourself, 
uh, that that care about this issue and that you can reach out to and work with. Now, turning back to the threats, what should we be looking out for to be able to identify an Islamist within our midst? So the thing about that is I always encourage people to focus on two things, right? And it's not their religion or what country they're from. It's what have they said and done and who do they work for and who do they work with, right? So associations, documentable associations with groups and individuals that they work with and then things that they themselves actually said, right? And you'll see, you'll see this creep up, the anti-Semitism, the anti-LGBT statements, the anti-women mm. statements, right? Uh, if, you, if you keep an eye on these guys, you will see that, right? If you're looking at guys that are maybe publicly in mm. the mainstream, uh, they watch what they say a little bit, uh, you're still going to go back and you're going to see ties to uh, groups like uh, the Muslim Students Association mm-hmm. on college campuses. You're going to see ties to college groups like Students for Justice in Palestine, right? And these other Islamist political groups that get people very young and recruit them and uh, and then move them up through the process to becoming a, a professional Islamist. And, and, and so let's, those are the sorts of tips I would look for. Let, let's just make this clear here. There's two events that have happened over the past 24 hours that point to the need for your network fighting this Islamist network here in the United States. One, a lone gunman known to French authorities enters into a Christmas market in Strasbourg, France, and opens up fire on dozens, if not hundreds of individuals who are shopping before the Christmas holiday. At least four are dead. The gunman is still on the run, and he's armed. And he was part of a community that was segregated from the rest of France. He was welcomed into the country. He was given refuge, regardless of of what his background was. And he was indoctrinated and got to the point where he became a threat to the French authorities. They put him on their radar. They were looking for him. And he had a moment where he decided to take that ideology and have a transference into violent action. The second item, a Muslim man in his 30s is found in a house in Newcastle with bomb-making materials in the United Kingdom. He was off the radar of the English authorities. Something like 20,000 individuals that are known to be associated with extremism, with Islamist extremism, are currently on the radar of the British authorities. Here in the United States we find ourselves again on the precipice of violence because we allow politicians to get elected to some of the highest offices in the land, often saying one thing when they're running for office and then showing their true colors after they get elected and sworn in. We find, as Kyle, you had pointed out earlier, there are known individuals with connections to violent entities in foreign countries that are going under the radar, even though you are making a valiant effort and trying to cover it, but the rest of the press isn't picking it up. And while the mainstream terrorism trials of the aughts, right after 9-11, and then maybe having a crescendo with 2007 and 2008's Holy Land uh, Foundation trial, for the last 9 to 10 years, the prosecution, the identification, and the effort to try to delegitimize these Islamist these Islamist networks have somewhat dissipated. 
And in its place, we have a new generation of extremists who are trying to influence the American political, the American community, the communal, and the American social processes. That's why your network exists. With the last final thought, what would you share with our listeners about not just what they can do, but about what the American government and its local leadership can do to ensure that these individuals do not cater as the main spokespeople for American Islam? Well, Greg, I couldn't have said it better myself. You know, you really emphasize that issue that uh, Islamists and their spread of Islamist ideology ultimately results in violence every time. You know, there have been studies that have conclusively shown that membership in an Islamist uh, organization is one of the leading uh, correlations with engaging in jihadist violence. So it's very important that our law enforcement at all levels understands that especially at the local level. They also need to understand that at the local level, they are responsible at the end of the day. I know the federal government puts a lot of tax dollars to this, but at the end of the day, the local cop on the street is the one who's going to have to answer the call when somebody like this Drownsburg attacker opens fire. Right? So you need to be responsible for yourself and your command. You need to understand which groups are Islamist, which ones you shouldn't be dealing with, right? and that your command shouldn't be dealing with, and find alternatives uh, in the community, and we are here to help you do that. Counter Islamist grid. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Greg. Final thoughts after these last messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. At any given moment, Somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio, Philadelphia. To finish our line of thought of what Kyle Scheidler, the director of the Counter-Islamist Grid, was addressing, this is that while all politics are local, all Islamists are locally imbued and indoctrinating as well. 
But there's another issue that comes up when we're talking about extreme ideology, not just here in the United States or what we talked about with the Stroudsburg example and the Newcastle example, but what's going on in the Middle East itself and the dissemination of different ideologies and political processes that are going on in the region. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about the nation-state of Qatar, ruled by the Altani family in Doha, the nation's capital, and its efforts to influence what's going on here in the United States, what's going on in Europe, everywhere else around the rest of the world. But there's a specific example of an internecine Palestinian rivalry between Fatah, that is the party that controls the PLO, or the Palestine Liberation Organization, sitting in Ramallah, the capital of its political entity in the West Bank to the east of Israel, and Hamas, which is the Islamist group that rules the Gaza Strip to the southwest of Israel. Now, Qatar has been financing the Hamas government in Gaza since 2007. They have provided fuel subsidies. They've built neighborhoods. They have even gone so far to commit $90 million to underwrite the salaries of Hamas officials in Gaza between September of this year through February to the tune of about $15 million a month. But the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah Party in Ramallah is not happy is not happy about the bifurcating of the Palestinian budget. According to the Jerusalem Post, Palestinian Authority officials on Tuesday accused Qatar of working towards establishing a separate Palestinian state in the Gaza Strip and called for the expulsion of the Emirates envoy Mohammed Al Ahmadi. The accusations came after Al Ahmadi was quoted as saying that he had a proposal to the establishment of an airport in the Gaza Strip, but had received no response from Israel. Commenting on the Qatari envoy's proposal to build an airport in the Gaza Strip, PLO official Mohammed Majad Lalani said that this was an assault on Palestinian sovereignty, not that they have a state. That's my own uh, extemporaneous commentary. Munir al-Jahoub, a senior Fatah official, also accused Qatar of meddling in the internal affairs of the Palestinians. Mahmoud al-Zak, a senior representative of the Palestinian Popular Struggle Front, a small group that's affiliated with the PLO, also accused Qatar of working towards establishing a separate Palestinian political entity in the Gaza Strip. Qatar, he claimed, was also seeking to create an alternative to the PLO, the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. Now, whenever there would be a division or a fissure between the Palestinians, I'd usually be happy. They can't necessarily even agree to get along with Israel or any other Arab country in the rest of the region. But seeing the Qatar example of dividing Fatah and Hamas, in two different geographic locations, believing in two different, both nefarious and malign, let me mind you, but two different political ideologies, and having a state-sponsored division of Gaza and of the West Bank is not something that I am particularly thrilled about. Not because there is another actor that's being involved in the Israeli-Palestinian process or an in internal Palestinian politics, but this is another example of Qatar trying to disrupt what is otherwise an internal matter. It doesn't matter if you're the United States. It doesn't matter if you're Israel. It doesn't matter if you're Turkey and you're receiving money in the tune of $15 billion from the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund to underwrite your currency when the United States is putting sanctions on you. It doesn't matter if you're Iran 
And Qatari Airlines is increasing the amount of flights that are going to Tehran to help you disrupt the sanctions that are being put on your country. Wherever there is the possible example of folly to be executed in the Middle East or throughout the rest of the world, the Qataris are there to take their share in the mayhem. And one can only guess what their true intentions are. A country that supports the Muslim Brotherhood and has its spiritual leader headquartered in its capital. A country that plays host to terrorist groups, whether it be the Taliban, Al-Qaeda entities, whether it be sponsoring, albeit through ransom payments, Hezbollah, which is a Shia terror group, or sponsoring American lobbyists to advocate on behalf of your agenda to the tune of over $20 million in one year. And even going so far to trying to bribe international officials to get the World Cup in your country, this Palestinian injection of capital from the Qatari government and from their efforts to try to influence the Palestinian political process only has one winner and one loser in the end. The Palestinians have already lost. But the real myth of what the Qataris are doing here is they are setting up and bolstering another enemy to Israel and to the United States by providing a false hope for the Palestinian people that they have a new sovereign savior in the form of the Qatari government. So let's just remind ourselves, whether it's a local Islamist that's trying to influence a church or a government that's sitting on trillions of dollars of oil and natural gas reserves that's trying to influence a foreign political process, Islamism is bad all around. That's it for the show this morning. I'm Greg Roman here on Middle East Forum Century Radio, thanking Delaney Janchik and our guest Kyle Scheidler for joining us this morning. Hope everyone has a great week.